text. We're setting aside Romans 7 for now to focus on the Christmas season, and we'll pick back up after New Year's. So you're going to have to wait till then to find out whether Paul was a believer or an unbeliever at the end of the chapter. Both of those are legitimate interpretations that we'll talk through whenever we, we get there. But the Christmas season, this Christmas season, we're going to look at our Lord's life. And to do that, we have to start with His coming. I mean, when you think about it, I hope you think about it. It's even prayed this morning that we would think about it. Christmas is the most significant event in human history. Obviously, you could argue the, that Easter, the resurrection, I would say it's all part of that, the same event, which was God coming to earth and enrobing himself in, in human flesh. And when you, when you think about it, that, that's a staggering statement. I mean, the common response to that event anywhere in the New Testament is worship God, who was the infinite creator, came to earth and took upon himself humanity, became a human being. The angels worshipped whenever that reality was made known to them in Luke 2 and suddenly... There appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. The shepherds worship as a response to this event. Luke 2.20 The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. You might even think of Simeon and Anna who were waiting for the consolation of Israel in, in, in the temple. They worshipped. Luke 2, 28, it said, And he, that's, that's Simeon, took him, that's Jesus, into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Anna did the same. Just a few verses later, it says, And then, as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving God thanks. She worshipped, continuing to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. I would say probably the most evident, the one that probably comes to your mind, the wise men, they worship. Matthew 2, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And even Mary worshiped what's called her Magnificat, a statement of praise or a song of praise composed by her to the Lord in Luke 1. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. She worshiped. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. And he, she goes on for several verses. Worship is the appropriate response to this event. But there's one gospel in particular that begins in a way to produce awe and worship from us. It's written in order to produce worship. I mean, Matthew and Luke begin with the very familiar Christmas stories, but John's account that we heard this morning is very different. 
His Christmas account has 18 verses, and there's no mention of Mary or Joseph or Bethlehem, no stable, no shepherds, no wise men, no star, no baby. But the worship-inspiring Christmas story is there in bold letters, and its summary, summary of verses 1 through 18 is found in verse 14, which is the one we're going to look at today. Look at verse 14. It's exactly where Gus left off. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We, we, we sing the theme of John in the song, Emmanuel, God with us. John MacArthur said, What we celebrate this time of year is that the infinite, transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, everlasting, unchanging, eternal God of the universe became a human being. And that's the message of Christmas. And it's, it, it's profound whenever you think about it. I mean, He is the Messiah who came to us and brought God near. And this God has a specific, specific name. I mean, people say there are three things that you should never talk about unless you want tension, and that's religion, politics, or money. Bring up religion, politics, or money, and there's a thickness that comes to the, to the air. But frankly, I find people very willing to talk about politics and religious things, sometimes a little too much. I, I would suggest that the more surefire way to bring an awkward tension to a conversation is to mention what John does here in... In, in his gospel. I mean, if you've ever, ever shared Christ with anyone before, you know that most people are happy to talk about God or his forgiveness or love or, or even heaven. But the moment that you mention the name Jesus, you get an entirely different reaction. And the reason is Jesus Christ is the only name given under heaven whereby you must be saved. And the Bible says there is salvation in no other. And that exclusivity, that accountability, is what people recoil over and find offensive. It's not the general idea of a deity, but the specific name of God. God's name specifically that they don't like. Because the name Jesus removes all wiggle room. It defines it crowds out every, everyone else and everything else. It pierces with personal clarity that cuts to the quick. And that's because the person of Jesus places biblical boundaries on who God is. And, the challenge, and it challenges the God that, that, that people have created in their own minds. And then it forces them to decide what they believe about Him. Is He God or isn't He? So who is Jesus Christ? John defines him here. His identity is the question that all people will face at the end of life. You know, when you speak to someone, they have all kinds of ideas of what it's going to be like when I stand before God, if they believe in God. Well, I'm going to ask God a question. I heard a man this past week talk about whenever he get, gets to heaven, he's got some things he's going to talk to God about. And I heard someone else talk about, you know, well... Uh, I'm going to let my good outweigh my bad, and, and, and I hope that we're going to have this conversation with, with, with God. What actually is God going to say? What, what, what's going to be the basis of the, of the discussion? Philippians 2 tells us. We don't have to guess. It says, For this reason also, 
God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His identity. That's going to be the discussion. Who was he? What did you do with him? Who did you say that he was? Every knee, every tongue, at his name. It's the reason that Jesus asked that same question to the disciples early on in Matthew 16, the passage that you probably know well, when he, when he takes them to Caesarea Philippi. And says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Some people are answering. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah. Elijah had to come before the Messiah was to come. So they are thinking that, that Jesus is the forerunner for the Messiah. Still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. I like the way some translations put it, paraphrases. Jesus says, but what about you? What do you say? And in that passage, you know that Peter gives the correct answer. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And people have been confronted with that same question ever since. And some people will say that Jesus was a teacher, and others will say even he's the Messiah, but Jesus himself to be claimed, claimed to be much more than a religious figure. He claimed to be God in the flesh. And if he was not, then there's no salvation that he can offer us. I mean, a teacher's lessons cannot pay for your sins. I mean, a wise man may help you live here and now, but, but he cannot raise you from the dead on the last day. Only a Savior who is God can do those things. In, in fact, the fact that Jesus is God divides all of mankind, who he is, the, the correct definition, the biblical definition of Jesus. It's an offense for Muslims. It's a stumbling stone for Jews. It's a foolish myth for the educated. Polytheists, like Hindus, they gag on his exclusivity alone as God, like that there's only one. And yet the Apostle John knows it's the headwaters of the gospel, and he doesn't shy away from that truth one inch. In his letter, he puts the identity of Jesus Christ right up front. He puts it on full display. He declares with great force that Jesus is not just someone with supernatural powers who reveals a way to heaven. He's God in the flesh. In the only hope for sinners to reach the eternal kingdom, he is the Word made flesh who dwelt among men. That's the theme of John's gospel. The most significant distinction of John and all the others is the deity of Christ is, is taught in every single chapter, and here it is with hurricane force in the prologue, and John begins his entire record, record with it. Look at verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Literally, when the beginning began, the Word already was. He declares the eternality of Jesus Christ, who was God. And he says, if, if you miss this, the, the in the beginning comment should have taken your mind back to Genesis 1. If you miss that, he spells it out for you plainly in verse 3. Look at verse 3. He's the Creator. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He's a Creator. And as the Creator, He gives life and light to all men. Look at verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John further defines, though, in explicit detail who it was that dwelt among us in verse 14, in our verse, verse 14. And the Word, this Word, that was eternal, was the Creator, that gave light and life to all men, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw or beheld His glory. This is John's summary verse his, of his introduction. And our minds, again, should be drawn back to Genesis 1 in the beginning God and the fact that He is the Creator and this Creator tabernacled among us. The eternality of Christ, the Trinitarian position of Christ, the absolute deity of Christ is shouted from the first chapter of John. I mean, if John was attempting to woo his readers into the story before he laid the heavy stuff on them, then this is surely not the way to do it. But if the deity of Christ is fundamental to the gospel, and if it brings salvation, then that's where we must begin. And he even says, if you even receive this testimony, that Jesus is God in the flesh, if you receive this testimony, the testimony about that, then you can become a child of God. Look at verse 9. This verse as we skipped over. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him received the testimony of who he is. To them he gave the right to become children of God. Even those who believe in his name, all that he is, all that he claimed to be, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, they were born of God. Like in Romans 1, it enlightens every man. It says, God has given every man enough light so that they're without excuse for their unbelief. But John is writing God's testimony about Jesus so that you would believe. I'm writing this so you would believe. I'm giving you this testimony so you would know and that you would believe. And that distilled testimony is found right here in this one verse that we're looking at. And from it, he says the coming of Christ, the coming of Jesus, reveals God to us in, in three ways, three revelations from the person of Jesus Christ, His coming, God taking upon Himself human flesh. What did that do? What did that reveal? He revealed the infinite God to become personal. The unreachable God became present, and the incomprehensible God became plain. Jesus reveals that God is personal, God is present, and God is plain. He, he's understandable. You know who He is. All of that comes through Jesus Christ. The first revelation is that Jesus came so that the infinite God would, would be personal. Jesus is the eternal God who became flesh. And again, you probably don't have a problem intellectually or in your mind saying that Jesus is God it's that all that God is, the eternal creator, took upon himself humanity, came in the body of a human being. That is the epitome of love and the significant difference from every other religion in the world. I mean, John tells us in the first few words from verse 14 how this happened. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us personal. He dwelt among us. 
this God became man. Not man becomes God, which is what all the other religions in the world propose, but God became man. I mean, all the other religions in the world teach that God is out there or, or up there, and you must, through your religious effort, get to Him by pleasing Him in some way. I mean, you do something to become like God, to make yourself fit for Him, fit for heaven, through prayers or works, knowledge, or sacrifice. But, but the Bible and Christianity declares the exact opposite. It declares God became like man so that He could bring us to where He is. The infinite became personal. I mean, the phrase, the word became flesh, likely doesn't have the same impact on us as it would have had in John's day. I mean, when the, when the readers would have laid their eyes on the Greek text here, the word logos is in Greek. And they would have known exactly what that word meant. And it, and it wasn't a Bible software back then. I mean, Logos was a word that was used both by Jews and Greeks, which is why John chooses this specific word, and it meant something infinite, something limitless. I mean, to the Greek, the word was a title given to the creative force of the universe, to the intelligent mind that was, that was somehow out there ordering everything. I mean, similar to a deist today. It, it, the word logos meant impersonal reason or order and intelligence. But maybe you might think of like somebody who believes in intelligent design today. There's clearly design, there's clearly intelligence. We just don't know who that is or, or, or how that happens. I mean, we know there's something more. We don't know who or even if there is a who. That was kind of a Greek concept. Their gods operated by order from afar. And this logos emanated from them. Not just to the Greek, but to the Jew. The word logos was a word used to explain the entirety of Yahweh's knowledge. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was Yahweh's knowledge. All of his mind rolled into one. All of God's wisdom. In the beginning was God's wisdom that made sense out of all things. And the word of the Lord what was an expression of this used in the, in the Old Testament, the Word of the Lord. That was, that was God's logos, the Word. You might recall in Exodus, when Moses asks the Lord from the burning bush, who are you? God answers, you know, I, I am who I am, or I am the one who is, meaning many things, but at a minimum, I'm the etern eternally existent one. I am who I am. There's never I am. There's never a beginning. There's never an end. Just like this fire, which is which is self-existing. It's self-sustaining. It's burning. Nothing ignited it. It's not consuming the bush. It's there. It's just like me. The Lagos to a Jew was was wisdom and life and understanding. And and here's the key: it was it, 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 it's God's. It's it's past human understanding. It's past finding out. I mean, who could know the mind of God? I mean, we even say that in, in the Book of Romans. As a created being, who can fully know and grasp the logos? And all of that would have been understood. So when the reader would have reached verse fourteen, they would have been staggered by what they read. The word, the eternal wisdom of God. All that God is, all that God knows, became flesh. Impossible. 
how could that be? And they would have read a little bit further, and it said, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, that's scandalous. One wrote, how could God, who is impersonal, unknowable, transcendent, exalted above everything, take upon Himself creation? And not creation like some, some you know, a giant uh, superhero, mountain of a person, you know, something that was just, I mean, a human being, a baby, a normal human. I can still remember this exegetical insight in my first year Greek class. Bill Mount's beginning Greek. It says, John says the center of who God is, God's life, thought, all that he is, descended and entered this world and took up its form, its sarks, its flesh, in order to be known by us and save us. C.S. Lewis tried to help us comprehend what that was like in one of his writings. He, he said, lying at your feet is your dog. Imagine for a moment that your dog and every dog is in deep distress. Some of you have dogs, some of you don't. Those of you who do, you know somebody who just imagine that dog sitting there wagging its tail. That dog's in deep distress. Would you put down your human nature? Leave your loved ones, your job, your hobbies, your art, your literature, your music, and choose instead of intimate communion with, with your beloved husband, wife, the poor substitute of looking into the, that person's face and wagging your tail, unable to smile or speak. Christ, by becoming man, limited the thing to which he was the most precious thing in the world to him, his unhampered, unhindered communion, communion with, with, with the Father. I mean, even that's a pitiful example of how the infinite God takes upon himself human flesh, a human being to become a dog. That's still creation. This is the uncreated one. And he did that so you could know him personally. The word became flesh. Flesh doesn't mean like in Romans 7, like sin nature. It just simply means physical body. Simply a whole man, a human form. It means the eternal wisdom of God came robed in human flesh and lived among the creation who by the same eternal wisdom he spoke into existence in the beginning. And this is the eternal second person of the Trinity. It's breathtaking. And yet, that's exactly what it says. And it's necessary for salvation. It's called the doctrine of the incarnation. In the Latin, incaro, meaning flesh. It's Jesus always was, always was God, but before the incarnation, before Christmas, he didn't possess a human nature. He didn't possess a human body. But in the virgin birth, having been conceived of the Holy Spirit, he humbled himself and took upon himself human form. And now he continues to be God and man. He's the eternal second person of the Trinity. Up until his coming, at his coming, he takes upon himself human flesh, and now he continues to be both God and man, two distinct natures, one person forever. <clears throat> and those two natures are inseparably united. They're not mixed in any way. It's what theologians call the <clears throat> hypostatic union. He's God but he has forever joined himself to a human nature in order that he might 
be our Savior and great high priest. Philippians 2, the first part of that explains it. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, remain hold of it. Even though he was God, he, he, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. He was fully God and fully man, and yet without sin. He was fully God to live the perfect sinless life, to do the Father's will without fail. He was fully man to suffer, bleed, and, and die as a substitute and a sacrifice for God. He was fully God to love perfectly, be omniscient, have mercy, and hate sin, and fully man. So he could be tempted in all points like we, yet succeed without sin. And what the incarnation declares is that God has not remained out there. He's not abandoned us in our sin. He personally came to us. He didn't send an angel. He came. And when He came, He was present. It's just the, the second revelation. The unreachable God became present. He's the transcendent God who, who came to us. Jesus Christ is the transcendent God who came to us. God is personal the person of Jesus Christ, and He's present in His birth. Look at the first half of the same statement in, in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he dwelt, He remained, He tabernacled. Jesus didn't just take creation upon Himself and then go back to heaven and say, all right, here's the example. Look to me up here in heaven and follow this example. He didn't do that. He lived among his creation. He didn't just come at Christmas and receive the human body necessary to die for us and then go back. He remained. He walked among us. The word John uses means to pitch a tent, to tabernacle. He wasn't here permanently because we're not here permanently. But he came for 33 years. The word is a clear reference to the tabernacle of the Old Testament, which Exodus... 25 calls the tent of meeting. Exodus 33 calls the tabernacle of witness. This word became flesh, dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, God told Moses that he would deliver his people and live in their midst. I'm going to lead you out of Egypt, and I'm going to tabernacle in your midst. He would give them law so that as unholy people they could know how to live and enjoy the presence of a holy God, and, and He would dwell, He would tabernacle, same word. There, in the tabernacle, is where He would meet them, and they would learn who, who He is. Exodus 25, and let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Tabernacle among them. In Exodus 33, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside of the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And there, God taught them who He was through the law, the law that we've been talking about in Romans 7. And He taught them who they were by the same law and the sacrifices that were required. He's now in the midst of His people. And the tent of meeting showed Israel that God was in their midst. He was there among them, but there were still boundaries separated them. He is there, but He is holy, and they needed someone to stand between this God who is now in their midst, and between them as sinful people. They needed a mediator, a priest, between them. 
And it taught them that they needed the sacrifice that was offered by this mediator to atone for their sin. And when the, uh, the tabernacle was completed in Exodus 40, God's glory filled the tent. Something else that John talks about in this verse. It says, Moses finished the work. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Separation. Moses can't even come in because of this consuming glory. And John says, in the same way as God was present in the midst of the people in this tent of meeting in the Old Testament, now God is present in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the very very presence of God, and that's where, where, where man will come to meet God now. Not in a tent in the middle of the desert, but they'll come to Jesus Christ. But the difference between Him and the original tabernacle that was made of cloth is He's come in the flesh, in a human body. And He's also become the mediator Himself, not a priest or a Levite. You don't need me to stand between you and, and God. You need Jesus Christ. He's become the mediator himself. He's the place that you come, and he's the one who stands between you you and God. And he's the sacrifice also that can take away your sins completely. You see, in the, the tabernacle of Moses, the mediator had one job, which was to offer a sacrifice to address the sin that separated all of these unholy people, sinful people, now in the presence of a holy God. When Jesus Christ came, the tabernacle, the priest, and the sacrifice, that's what he became. And he's now the place that we meet God. And he's the one who stands between or brings us to God. And his sacrifice is what removes our sin and offense. Because he's the sacrifice. And your sins are not just covered, they're taken away. And in the Old Testament, people had to come to meet God and deal with their sins over and over. And it's the key reason why... The Jewish people knew that their Messiah had not come yet. Uh, turn, if you would, back to, to Hebrews chapter 10. This talks exactly about what John is mentioning here. Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Hebrews 10 tells us the fact that they had to continue the sacrifices. It was a reminder their sin remained. It had not been taken away. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered. Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have conscience of their sins. You know what that says? That says the reason that they kept coming back was because their conscience hasn't been fully cleansed. They, they were still aware that they were in their sins. You know what that also says? It also says you as a believer, if your conscience has been cleansed, you don't need to keep coming back, confessing the sins that you did in the past. Those sins are taken away. You're completely sanctified. The evidence, one of the evidences that you're a believer. 
is that your sins are gone and your conscience is cleansed. You know you're right with God. It doesn't mean that you won't sin. It doesn't mean that you won't feel guilty. It doesn't mean that your fellowship won't be separated. But you fundamentally know that God is someone that you no longer fear in the sense of judgment. Look at verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins year by year. Why? For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God reminded them of their sins year after year. And just like now, God reminds you your sins are forgiven in Jesus. Look at verse 5. Here's exactly what John's talking about. Therefore, when he comes into the world, that's Christ. When he comes into the world, sacrifice and offering, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, that's in the Old Testament, to do your will, O God. And look at verse 10. Here's the key. By this, that's the offering of that body. By Christ offering his body on the tree. By this, we will... we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, the work that Jesus does. He just doesn't temporarily cover your sins and leave you aware that you're still in them. The atonement of Christ takes away your sin, cleanses your conscience from dead's works, meaning that you know your sins have been dealt with forever. There's no other sacrifice, no other work, or something or someone else that needs to, needs to do. I mean, Christ accomplished His mediating, atoning, sanctifying work, and declares that from the very altar itself, from the cross, he cried, it is accomplished, it's finished. Perfect, passive, indicative verb. It means it's completed and stands complete. It's finished, and as a, as a result, it's forever done. It stands accomplished. That's why an accurate picture of Jesus is not him still on the cross, but one of him seated in heaven. Because his sacrificial work is done. I mean, the priest in the tabernacle stands fulfilling their ministry by offering sacrifices. But Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is seated in, in heaven. And we are seated in the heavenlies in him. Because his atoning work is finished. It stands, stands complete. He need never arise and offer anything as a sacrifice. Offer anything on the altar. He points to it. He's an advocate. But he points to the sacrifice already done. Satan accuses you, and Christ says the marks of the slaughter are still upon you, forgiven. Because the full payment for our sins has been made in the past, and the effect of that payment endures throughout all eternity. And in Jesus, God came near. He became personal. And through Jesus, we enter God's presence. It's the third way. The incomprehensible God was made plain. He's unfathomable. But by Jesus, God has revealed himself to us. What's he like? What's God like? Who's God? Look at verse 14. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, so he's personal. He came. What among us? And now he made God plain. He's made God plain. We beheld his glory. I mean, God didn't just become a man 
so that we would, so that we, 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 could, we could just know what our sin is. He didn't just come to us because we could never come to Him. In the person of Jesus Christ, He teaches us what God's really like, or who God's really like. Do you know how many gods there are in the world, little g? Thousands of them. Some people don't even know, know their names. I, I looked up a Hindu source because I know Hindus are polytheistic. This is a, from a Hindu source. One of the most frequent, frequently asked questions about Hinduism is, how many gods are there in Hinduism? And the most common answer to this question is that there are 330 million gods. But if you ask anyone to give their names, no one would be able to do so. And also, many Hindus do not agree on this number. Some will say there is only one god, while some will say there are 33 gods. The reason behind this confusion is that the different scriptures give different numbers. Well, that's nice. We don't know how many gods there are. We don't know their names, and the books don't even agree. I mean, that's comforting if you're following that to heaven, right? There are thousands, millions of imaginary gods because man doesn't really know who the true God is. And so he creates little gods, little g, in his own image. Some are vengeful and punish people's enemies because people feel helpless and they can't do that themselves, so they imagine gods like that. Some are wise and know the mysteries of life because people feel limited by the boundaries of their own understandings. I mean, some are kind and non-judgmental because people are aware of their guilt and they can't cease from sinning, so they want a God that just overlooks their sin. Some gods are carnal, men make, because people love their sin and they want a God who approves it. But what's God really like? Is he like a grandfather that understands and overlooks your sin, a harsh disciplinarian that's happy whenever you obey perfectly but is just very ready to punish you when you step out of line? You see the great need meter? He's there whenever your, your heart has a want. I can tell you who God is and what he's like. Just read this book about Jesus. He tells us his name. This book never contradicts itself. There's one God, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals to us what God is really like. This infinite, all-knowing, wise God took upon himself humanity personally and to make himself plain. Years ago, um, I think it was back in the 80s, and I know it was a long time ago because whenever you, you, you listen to it, MacArthur's voice is really high and he talks really fast. If you've ever listened to John in his early days. And he tells this somewhat humorous story about being on an airplane and the man who didn't really know who God was but thought. It was a seated beside an Arab man and as the plane took off, the man keeps looking, he keeps glancing over at, over at John and John was reading his Bible and he finally gets up enough courage to ask John if that's what he was reading. He was reading a Bible. And he told John he was new in America, he was from Iran, and he said, everyone in Iran is Muslim, but I'm confused about American religion. Can you tell me the difference between a Catholic, a Protestant, and a Baptist? That was his question. And so John went on to explain that in layman terms, uh, Protestant meaning to protest, and the true gospel, faith alone, grace alone, and 
And then MacArthur said, since, since you asked me a question, can I ask you one? And the answer was, sure. He said, do Muslims have sins? And the man said, oh, yes. We have many, many sins, he said. We have so many sins, I don't even know how many sins. I don't even know all the sins we have. John said, okay. Can I ask you another question? He said, yeah. He said, do you commit those sins? And the man said, all the time. In fact, to be honest with you, I am on this flight to El Paso right now to go do some sins. <laughs> I met a, a, a woman whenever I in, immigrated, and we're going to do some sins this weekend. And John said, well, then let me ask you another question. How does God feel about your sins? And the man said, it's very bad. God is very unhappy about my sins. And John said, so then, so what can happen? And the man said, well, I could be in big trouble if I go to hell. And MacArthur said, so you're going to go ahead and do this? And the man said, yes. And he said this, but I hope, and he was broken English, he said, but I hope the God will forgive me. And MacArthur said, based on what? Is there anything special about you? I mean, or in Islam, is there anything special in Islam that indicates that God will, will do that for people who are willfully sinning like you? And the man said, no. I just hope he will. And then MacArthur said, I don't know whatever, whatever took me, but, but I just looked at him and said, well, I know him personally and he won't. You see, the guy almost flipped out. He says, like, you know God personally? He said, like, if that's true, what are you doing sitting in coach with me? <laughs> but he said the man asked that because the whole idea about knowing God personally, like that God would draw near to you, come to you, that's completely foreign to a Muslim. But John said, I know him personally, and he won't forgive you. You're going to die in your sins. And then he shared the gospel with him that through Jesus Christ, who was God, who has come to us, you can have all of your sins forgiven eternally. And the man said, for the first time, I think I understand Christianity. And John said, you do. Listen, we have done sins. Many, many sins. Willful sins. You may, have even, you may even be doing some sins right now in your life. And God won't just forgive you. You can hope all you want. That same God came to you so he could take away your sin on the cross. Jesus is the one who made God known to us personally. God was made fully known to sinners in the person of Jesus Christ. He uniquely displayed the glory of God. Look at that verse. Verse 14. Back in John 1. And the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. We beheld it. The, the word saw or behold means to study, to be a spectator of, of something, so that you can comprehend it. It's like what people do at, at, at art galleries, where they stand for long periods and look at a painting. You just, as a kid, I used to go, to go to a museum. You watch all these old people. They're just standing there in front of a picture, and you're thinking, what in the world are they doing? I mean, look at the picture and move on. I mean, it's how boring is that? But whenever you get older, you appreciate things differently, don't you? 
And they're there inspecting every brush stroke. One goes this way and one goes that way. And look at the kind of paint that they used. And that's what this word means. But I'm afraid some people don't look at Christ that way. They think they know Christianity. Or they do know Christianity, but they don't know Christ. And they just blow past Christmas. Some people treat the portrait of Christ like a middle schooler on a field trip rather than an art lover that drinks in this display of who He is. Who is God? Look at Jesus Christ. Read your Bible. Read the Gospels. What is your Christian life if Christ is not your love? Is it a bunch of stuff that you do? I mean, yeah, there's stuff that you do, but you do that stuff because you love Him. What motivates you if it's not to know Him and the, the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering? And it's the person who draws near to Him desires to please Him. And Jesus is where you, you look to know God. And during His earthly ministry, He gave us a glimpse, this verse says, of God's very glory. We, we beheld His glory. We saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. What is, what is God like? Look at Jesus. Is God kind? Is Jesus kind? Is God merciful? Is Jesus merciful? Is there a hope? Did Jesus offer hope? Jesus Christ displayed all who God is because He was God. Now don't miss something about the statement. It's scary in the beginning, but then it, it turns hopeful. Because just like this Muslim, we've done sins, and if Jesus embodies the very glory of God, the same glory that, that engulfed the tabernacle, that same glory is now, is now in the presence of Christ, then we have a problem here, not a solution. Because the glory of God is something that sinners can't, can't come in contact with. Because sinners can't come in contact with God's glory and live. So if this verse stopped there, it would say that Christ brought God's glory near in the person, human form, so we can now behold how separated we are from it. But that's not where it stops, or what Jesus did. Verse 14, we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Ah, oh, there it is, there's the hope. He's full of grace and truth. Grace that draws near to sinners, grace that allows sinners to draw near to Him, truth that atones for them. This is a, a reference to Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6. When the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I mean, when Moses asked God to reveal Himself to him, God could not let Moses look upon him. No man look, has looked upon God, the Father, and, and, and lived. And so, so God communicates to Moses in speech. And these are God's own words about Himself. What will God say about Himself? What will God say about Himself? He says He's full of grace and truth. He's merciful and gracious and slow to anger, forgiving iniquity and sin. And he will not let the guilty go unpunished. True. But now, 
God doesn't just reveal Himself in words. He reveals Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the complete fullness of all of that grace and mercy. And you can see Him as well as hear Him. And you can know the truth, and the truth will set you free from the cross. Jesus displays God to us. Look at verse 18. It further elaborates on verse 14. Verse 14 through 18 is a section. Verse 18 explains more of what he means here. Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. That's Jesus. Explain the Father to us this infinite, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God has come near and revealed Himself to us. You can't say Jesus and God are different, for Jesus reveals God in all of His fullness. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. God who at various times in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, that's the Old Testament, but in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son whom He has appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also made the worlds. He was the Creator. Who, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, that's Christ. Jesus said to the disciples, if you've seen Me, what? You've seen the Father. I'm Him. Different person in the Godhead, but I'm God. And that's what John is announcing to us. The light has come. The creation has entered creation. The creator, I should say, has entered creation. But if that's true, why isn't everyone worshiping him? I mean, if Jesus is the creator who gave life and is described as light, and this light comes into the world and it it enlightens every man and, you know, the one who reveals God, if Jesus is the one who reveals God, He is our Creator and He's revealed Himself to all creation, then why do people have to be told that the lights come? I mean, why, why, have a, why need to have a Gospel of John to tell us? I mean, wouldn't everybody know it? I mean, why does the light need an announcement? Why do we need to be told? Well, he gives us the answer in verse 4 and 5. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. I mean, one writer put it this way. When someone turns the lights on whenever it's dark, everyone knows that the light has come. They see that the light was turned on. That is, unless you're blind. Then you have no way of knowing that somebody turned the light on. Imagine a blind woman sitting in a room, and it's night. It would seem no different to her than noon. She didn't have any access to the warmth of the sun. She would have no way of knowing that the light was turned on, and so it is with us in our sin. 
we're deaf and can't hear his voice. People read the book of Exodus. They read the Bible. They read God revealing himself in their own voice, and they just... We're dumb. Our brains can't grasp the truth. And we're blind. The light comes and it shines into the darkness and we don't comprehend it. We have no idea it's there, so we must be told that the light has come, the light is on, and without that announcement we would have no idea. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the light is on. He's come. And not only did he love humanity, his own creation, enough to come reveal himself in that way, but he loves them enough to send preachers out all over the world to proclaim that the light has come, the light's been turned on. The real question is not who is Jesus. The Bible tells us he's God. The infinite God who became personal, the unreachable God who became present, the incomprehensible God who became plain. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. The real question is, what do you say about who he is? What do you say about his name? Because there is salvation in no other. And in his name, all of creation will be called to account. Is he a baby in a manger scene, a teacher, a special man, or is he God who's come to take away your sin? The answer to that is the key to the door of heaven. Because you have done many, many sins. The gospel declares to us Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. What you must do is repent and receive the testimony of God about Jesus Christ, and then you can rejoice, for God has come to man. And this morning, maybe he's even come to you. Let's pray. Father, you have already told us what our response is to this. You've modeled that for us. It's worship. What the angels did, the shepherds did, what the wise men did, what Mary did, Simeon and Anna, people that were looking, that were believers, what believers did. It's what we do. We worship. We ascribe worth to you. Father, would you please help us as believers to comprehend, to think deeply about you taking upon yourself human flesh, thinking about why you did that, testing our questions or even our conclusions about God against the person of Jesus Christ. Father, would you this morning... If anyone is doing sins or even has plans to do sins later today or this coming week or holiday, would you remind them that you do not forgive sins willfully done if they're outside of Jesus Christ? Would you keep them from doing something that foolish, convincing themselves it's okay? Because you've died for all sin. And you wash us clean through the person of Jesus. We praise his name. We worship you this morning. In the name of Christ, amen.